Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. This is APSATS Radio, help for partners after sexual betrayal. We talk about it here. Betrayal trauma. We are APSATS certified clinical partner specialists and coaches who have been trained to help navigate you through this crisis. There is nothing we won't talk about. Sometimes listeners want to know about triggers. I'm dealing with the aftermath of my husband's affairs, and he still works the same job that he did when he was acting out. It's a job that allows him to hide his goings-on and one that he stated was the previous trigger for his acting out. The whole 16 and a half years we've been together, he's acted out. In the beginning, what I thought it was was just pornography. Um, it ended up being, I found out two and a half years ago, he had been with multiple prostitutes. I only found out a very small portion of that until about a month ago. How do you cope with all of that when you still have to deal with unavoidable triggers? Well, of course you would feel traumatized by hearing all that information. And I got to tell you, Stephanie, that's a staggered disclosure. That's finding out little bits and pieces about your husband's behavior throughout a time period, making you feel insecure, unsure, and unsafe. So what we got to do is set up a situation whereby you get with a specialist to do a formal disclosure so you can hear everything at one time in a safe environment. You know, and part of creating safety is about being able to stay informed about what's going on. And I, you've heard me say this before, partners are absolutely masters at finding out information, not, not just on their husband, but they read. They um, are voracious readers. They, they want to know what they don't know. And so I really want to encourage you to ask the people that you're going to group with, ask your therapist, ask your coach, what books do they believe would be most beneficial in helping you to heal and to understanding sex addiction and to understand what's going on with your brain. I mean, what is it that you would need to know? And that is what is so important. And the reason it is so important is it helps you to make sense of a situation that absolutely is nonsensical. I mean, you are in shock. And so it's really important that you try to understand what is going on in your life. What is happening to you? What do you need to feel safe? And that's super important. Um, I love that so much. Uh, You know, one of the things that I know about people is that when they've been through a trauma, they don't know where to turn. And so... Having that information is like having power. And, wow, when we've got power, then it doesn't feel as scary. Now, while I was talking to you, I was looking for an email because I, was, I got an email from a woman who needed more help. Um, she was talking about how to navigate uh, how to navigate when your husband is attracted to same-sex um, same sex people. And so she actually, her husband was acting out with men, but he denies that he is gay. And she was saying, Carol, I just saw you on a Braveheart interview you know how the Braveheart Summit is going on right now, and I was one of the interviewed speakers. 
and she said, you seem to understand about certified sexual addiction and because you're a CSAT, a certified sexual addiction therapist. And I am so confused. There's very little to read about this niche. And she says, my husband absolutely denies being gay, but I have discovered all this information that shows that he was having sex with men. Please explain that to me. And so I want to say a couple of things, actually. I want to say that one of the things that we know is that sexuality is on a continuum. You've got homosexuality on one end, and then you've got heterosexuality on the second end, on the other end. So think of a continuum. One end is like I said, heterosexuality, one is homosexuality. And then you've got bisexuality in the middle. And my experience in working with sex addicts is that if they are bisexual, they can be married and actively acting out with men. However, if they're bisexual and they're acting out with men, they have a propensity to want to have a relationship with a male. And that means that they will go out on dates or they will um, find out about the relationship. They do want to kiss. It's not just about the sex. Now, that's not a sex addict. That is somebody who's married who is experimenting and exploring definitely violating the sanctity of his marriage, but acting out because they want to, if you will, have their cake and eat it too. They want to be in both worlds. Now, there is a whole nother group of people, and they don't want to be in any kind of gay relationship. They are not bisexual. But for whatever reason, and I suspect more often than not, trauma, they have participated in uh, sex acts with men, you know, people of the same gender. They don't want to kiss. They don't want a relationship. But they like the physicality of sex. So with this woman, I was looking for an email because I have a lot of questions. I, um, I want to know about her husband's background. I want to know if there was any molestation that occurred, any sex play that may have went too far. Um, it was interesting because I was talking to, I was talking to a man who had a memory come up. He's a sex addict, and he had a memory come up where he had been molested by somebody who was five years older than him. It was a girl. It was a babysitter. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, he was six, and he assumed that she was about 11. And so one of the things that I said was, yes, that's absolutely molestation. And as we were talking about it, he then remembered that his cousin had also molested him. Now, his cousin, who was also a female, was developmentally delayed. Um, He said she's very limited, that, you know, he still sees her today at family reunions, even though it's 30 years later. But she was developmentally delayed, and she actually encouraged him to penetrate her. And he was only 10 at the time. And so she was 11. He was 10. She was developmentally delayed. He did penetrate her. And then it never happened again. And I said, you know, I think for her that was sex play. She's developmentally delayed. She's really not 11. Uh, you said that, you know, she was like 
five or six in, in how she acted. She still continues to be very developmentally delayed and, and acts like a teenager even though she's in her 30s. And I said, I think she was experimenting with you, but I do suspect that she had been molested and she was um, reenacting, if you will, something that had happened to her. And he got so mad at me. And he said, that's not um, sex play. That was molestation. And I said, and he goes, and what was even sicker is that I didn't say no. I didn't stop her. I participated. Now, what I know to be true is that sex play oftentimes is about um, a situation whereby kids are experimenting with each other because of curiosity, because they've witnessed things that they don't understand, or because they've experienced things that they don't understand. And there has to be an age differentiation for it to be truly molestation. That's the criteria. And in addition to that, I suspect she was actually younger than him, even though she was a year older because of her delays. Um, And so I felt terrible. I felt like he was saying that her behavior was normal. And I wasn't saying that at all, but I was saying that she did not molest him. Now, for my partners that are listening right now, you may have experienced molestation, and I hope that this conversation isn't too triggering. I really want you to understand all the different types of uh, experiences that men may have. And, you know, I want you to email me at carol, carolthecoach.com if you have questions. Because if I don't have an answer, I sure will do my best to go to, oh, two listservs with over 2,000 people to find out what their beliefs or recommendations would be. Uh, and, and unfortunately, I worked in sexual abuse for a – that's not the unfortunate part. I worked in a sexual abuse um, center uh, for an entire county And I treated perpetrators, their family members, and the survivors. And the the outcome was, if at all possible, to set up really healthy boundaries to, to, to talk about the situation and to reconciliate family members if that was possible and safe. And I would get a lot of people that would come into the office And it really was sex play. It was like two four-year-olds playing doctor or two five-year-olds saying, hey, show me yours, show me mine. And they they thought for years that they had either molested somebody or had been molested. You know, we just don't talk about sex enough. And that's part of the problem. And so I really want to encourage you while you're doing your reading about sexual abuse, you also do your reading about healthy human sexuality because you didn't probably get any information growing up. Uh, if you did, it was that fifth grade lecture about the birds and the bees. And it will help you to de- determine what is it that you may have experienced as a kid. I was talking to a mom last night, and she said she ran around nude, you know, until her kids were pubescent, and she didn't have a bit of trouble with that, and she said, my kids all have healthy sexualities, and I said, yeah, they do that in Sweden, they do that in Germany, I mean, there's a lot of places that nudity is not a big deal, but in this culture in the United States, it can be, um, So feel free to ask me questions, let's talk, Uh, send me emails, because we want to expose you to information that will help you. And that's why we're doing neurofeedback training today. 
You know, so many people are unclear as to what neurofeedback is. And I know that I met Chrissy um, via email through a woman who was a partner. And she had um, been especially violated by her husband's sexual acting out because the two of them had saved their, uh, they saved sexuality for marriage. And so, you know, there's always so many betrayals that can occur when you have been sexually betrayed. And although neurofeedback is not a standalone treatment for trauma, it really, really, really helps. Now, what does that mean? It's not a standalone treatment for trauma. Well, it means that neurofeedback is a wonderful adjunct to trauma brain, especially if you've got a counselor or you're going to a support group or you've got a coach that's helping you with resourcing. Um, and it's, it's just an incredible opportunity for you to learn how to calm down the brain and pay attention to your body. And you've heard me say it before, the body keeps score. So when the mind is racing and you're having all sorts of panic attacks, um, boy, neurofeedback can be just the answer. So I'm going to be talking with Christy. She's on the line now. She, she has a great website, Be Your Best Brain. Dot com, And what I loved about her was her energy because she is really um, excited today to be talking to clients, our listeners, to talk about how the brain functions as both an organ and as a muscle, performing the most simple to the most complex tasks that make us all human. And when traumas occurred, boy, that's a whole nother story. So Christy, Welcome to Partner Betrayal Radio. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking and for having me today. Absolutely. Well, I, I'm so excited to be talking about neurofeedback because not enough people know about it. And I know that you really believe in the concept of brain fitness. I mean, you it's, it's both preventive and it also... Um, helps to make your brain be the best brain possible, even if you have been traumatized or you are wrestling with a certain memory or image. So tell us a little bit about what does brain fitness do? Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I think one thing that's really important to remember about our brain is that it is this master organ and it is this muscle, right? We have to use it or we lose it. Um, but it orchestrates everything from fine, simple tasks like breathing, movement, language, to complex behaviors like how we think, how we feel, um, how we perform, how we behave. So it's involved in such a wide, wide variety of functions. But because we can't see it and because the brain doesn't experience physical pain, then it's really overlooked and making sure that we are taking care of our brain health um, is just super important. And I just, that, that's just a, a super passion of mine. And as I got into this um, field several years ago, I, um, I just became, the more and more I learned about it, the more passionate I became to really help educate others for them to know what, what does brain fitness look like? Well, how do we take care of our brains? We don't talk about that. We don't talk about that when we go to the doctor until we're having a problem. And so no, I really it's like true. to help educate, yeah, others before we get to that point. <laughs> well, exactly. And so you got to explain a little bit more about what made you choose this profession. Because I, I know you're going to be talking about what neurofeedback is, but what made you decide to go into this field? Yeah. Well, it's kind of an interesting story. Um, I didn't wake up one day and decide I was passionate about this. Um, 
it came from a struggle we were having with my son. He was actually having trouble eating. And it had gotten to the point to where when his braces went on, he quit eating. And we had been to feeding clinics. We had been to specialists. We had been everywhere trying to get him help. And he he just quit eating. And he started losing weight. And so we ended up finding a feeding clinic in Springfield, Illinois, that specializes in feeding and eating disorders, problems children have. So we, we went on a waiting list. We got him in, and he was evaluated by this intense team of experts and within about 30 minutes it was really actually quick um, when you think about how long he'd been struggling with really from birth he had been struggling and they come in and they give us this long list of things that we can do and this program we're going to try but the very first thing they told us to try was they said he really needs some neurofeedback and they said it's a form of biofeedback. It helps the brain kind of self-organize. But when you've had stress like this that he has had really since birth, but when you've had this long-term stress, this horrible anxiety towards food, we have to settle that down first because otherwise our program is not going to work well. And so that's how I got into it. They recommended it. And so then I came back and searched it out and found that, no one around here did it, and I finally did find someone that helped me and worked with me, um, and after about six months, I said, okay, this has changed his life, and the more research I did and the more reading and talking with other people, I realized this helps a lot of different people, but no one knows about it, and it's not out there for anyone, so I went back to school and ended up you know, getting into business and mentoring with doctors and and getting into it that way. But but that's that's how I got into it. It was really because we were struggling with my son. And so now well, I help people of, with a lot of things. <laughs> well, and, you know, that's interesting because I've certainly sent a lot of people that were traumatized or a lot of people that have had difficult lives to neurofeedback. And I've got a kid right now who is having – eating difficulties too. And I worked at Riley, which was a child um, for anybody who's outside of the Indianapolis area. It is a children's hospital. It's renowned. And I thought maybe that's where I need to refer him. But now you're making me think maybe neurofeedback would help him too. Yeah. It really helps the brain to try to just it help turn off that fight and flight stress response. I come back to a sense of the present. Quit, like, get us unstuck from where we're stuck in those old patterns of adaptation and and behavior that that served us well maybe in the moment or for for the interim time, but they're not serving us well now. We need to disrupt that pattern, and we need to get back to how we were designed to function optimally, which isn't in that negative coping skill pattern. That's where we have all the symptoms, the anxieties, the you know, the headaches, the the symptoms that we can't get rid of. We just can't get them to go away. And so that's what we really and, found so beneficial for my son. Yeah. And so today this show is about partner betrayal, and, of course, that means sexual betrayal. And so we have a lot of people that are listening that have been betrayed and they they can't make sense of it and they wonder what's wrong with them and they do go into that amygdala response of fight, flight, or freeze. And that's why we say neurofeedback can be very, very helpful. So would you explain a bit more about what neurofeedback is for our partners that are listening? Yes. Um, Neurofeedback is a, a brain training program that helps the brain to self-organize, and it's done through EEG electrical activity. So the cortical activity coming from the scalp is read into a computer software program. You're lying down, relaxing in a chair. Um, You can be reading, eyes open, eyes closed. That doesn't matter for this program. And you're really just relaxing. And as this information is being read from your scalp, into this computer software program, 
there's music playing. And every time that computer software detects a change in that cortical activity, the music pauses very frequently, therefore providing you feedback. And it's telling your brain, here is how you're functioning. Similar to when you're driving down the highway and there's those rumble strips on the side of the road, and you might be veering off a little bit to the left or to the right. That would be like the pause in that music. And it's telling your brain something. And then you have to decide when you hear that pause, your brain decides this, whether it's going to listen to it and continue to ride on that rumble strip or if it's going to get back into the lane or not. So your brain has the ability to do this self-organizing. It's learning from what it's just done, and then it changes the pattern of how it's going to function in the future. And so repetition, meaning training more than once, obviously. So, so repetitively training is the process by which the brain is learning how to change how it's functioning for better, um, I'm sorry, for self-regulation. Does that make sense? Well, it definitely makes sense. So I'm thinking about our partners who, you know, at least I believe there's those three parts of the brain, the conscious, the subconscious, and the unconscious. And so oftentimes an anniversary date will come up or um, a song on the radio or they'll pass a certain hotel where they know that their husband was acting out or their wife, depending on who's the sex addict here. And they get triggered right. and they aren't mm-hmm. sure how to self-regulate or now the new term would be how to self-organize their brain. Correct. I mean, you can still use self-regulate. The brain is organizing itself. It's just, that's, that's how our bodies are designed. They are constantly reorganizing and self-organizing themselves. Um, let me talk a, a to the conscious, um, unconscious part of the brain. And, and I'm so glad that you brought that up. Um, there, there are a couple different kinds of neurofeedback. They're what we call linear, where you're looking at a certain area of the brain. You have to have a map, a diagnosis. It's very specific to just one area. And you're only looking at certain frequencies and bandwidths that are producing maybe a really strong signal. Okay, that's called linear traditional neurofeedback. It's driven by a protocol that's designed by a technician. Okay, then we have nonlinear neurofeedback. That's what I provide. Nonlinear neurofeedback is provided the same way, still through computer software, but it's driven, the protocol is driven by your own brain, meaning we know that only 5% of what we're thinking in a day is driven by our conscious mind. All those other behaviors are driven by the subconscious, right? So those triggers that we get and those feelings that overwhelm us, all of a sudden we don't know. It could be a smell. It could be the sight of something. It could be the color. It could be anything that trigger us, and we are overwhelmed with this emotion. And conscious brain says, I've already processed this. Why do I keep getting triggered? And the unconscious is because I still haven't dealt with it down here. I'm still dealing with it in here. It's still down here. And I'm going to trigger this stress response and get your attention. So the beauty about the nonlinear neurofeedback is it doesn't require you consciously to try to do anything. That's why it's such a beautiful adjunct therapy to talk therapy. Right? Because talk therapy, you're consciously really thinking about this and this and talking through things. With, with neurofeedback, you, you don't have to do any of that. Your brain is on autopilot. Every time it shifts and goes higher or lower in those frequencies, it's going to know what it needs to do. So it's going to dial in and rein in where it needs to do, and it's going to self-organize as it goes. Absolutely. And Again, for our listening audience, I, I'm always talking about the brain being hijacked by trauma. And so 
They do know about the amygdalas. They do know about the anterior cingulate. And they know about that prefrontal cortex and how the executive functioning and the decision-making occurs from that place. And Mm -hmm. when trauma occurs, because the amygdala sends signals of danger, it affects that emotional anterior cingulate and our partners end up feeling very, very traumatized and rejected and sad and anxious, lonely, angry, just are flooded with emotions, which then move to that prefrontal cortex, and they actually, it actually takes the brain offline because they're so flooded, they can't think straight, and they don't make good decisions. And so Absolutely. They under, yeah, they understand about that trauma, but I don't know if I've done much talking about the conscious brain, the subconscious brain, and the unconscious brain. Would you describe each part for them so that they'll understand how each part functions? Yeah, so um, I'm going to do my best here because I am in grad school still. (laughs) However, um, and and getting into this is more of that, uh, I guess, Freud um, theory of um, conscious, subconscious, and unconscious when we are um, young, hey, and we have too, a so lot. Just... Okay, good. Thank you. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, we yeah. have a lot of ingrained um, beliefs and that drive our behavior, um, shape our personality, things like that. Those are all stored. We're, we're not really. Um, I guess, I, is this subconscious then? Um, well, what I'm, I know to be true is that memories, images, um, thoughts are stored in all three parts of the brain. If you don't remember that you've had a memory or an image or a thought, it's unconscious, which means that it's been filed away. Yes. But but you don't have access to it. Um, And so many people that have been through very traumatic experiences like um, sex addiction or molestation or rape can protect themselves by their brain filing this information in the unconscious so that they don't have the memory. It's there, but they don't have access to that memory as a protective device. Then with the subconscious, right. what I'm going to be true is that that's that file that opens and shuts, opens and shuts. Sometimes you don't have any recollection of something, and then something triggers it, and it comes out, and you go, oh, yeah, I remember now that I hated peas when I was six years old, and my mother forced me to eat them. But it wasn't at the time front of the brain. It wasn't a, a memory that they had easy access to. Like in the conscious part of the brain, where those are the things that we, you know, we know how to drive and we put the car in gear and that's all conscious. Now, right. would you add anything to those three parts of the brain? Yeah. So, and I, and I've learned things a little bit differently, but yes, I agree with all of that. Um, the way that you're describing it. So for in in terms of neurofeedback, what 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 I have learned is that when we're working with someone who has had a traumatic experience, who has had some kind of whether they're being triggered or they've had some developmental trauma, maybe they've been a child in an orphanage, right? And they don't remember these things, but somehow their behaviors are reflective of someone who's been neglected or um, abused, so forth. And so it's triggering those things that are in that unconscious that are, um, that are traumatic, those traumatic memories. Um, and I guess in this case, I would probably say subconscious and unconscious, they're triggering that flight and flight stress response. And so that's deep in the brain. And when that's triggered, then, then the communication to the front part 
to the conscious part of the brain that has produces our logic and our reasoning and our deduction and and our think through this and well, well let me think about this for a minute kind of thing that's kind of shut off and i often describe it to people as being in a building that's three two or three stories tall and there's a fire and you've got people down here in your your unconscious on the first floor and that fire alarm's going off and those people have turned on every fire alarm in the building so the people on the top floor can't hear anything that's going on on the bottom floor because they're just hearing this loud ringing. And so gradually we start to say, okay, turn those off on that top. We don't need those. We don't need all these fire alarms on anymore. We don't have any more danger. Turn these alarms off. The smoke is cleared. Everything's gone. We're good to just now think about, you know, how we're going to clean this up or what we're going to do next. And so what happens is we turn that stress response off, we turn all those fire alarms off, and all of a sudden that top part of the brain comes back online and says, okay, yes, this is stressful, yes, this is whatever, but I've got this. I know what to do. I need to do this, I've got this, I've whatever it is. And so that's where I have seen such power with training people who have been through and diagnosed with things like PTSD, um, depression, um, have been through traumatic experience, all of a sudden those triggers, I'm not saying that they're never going to have them again, but the triggers are manageable. The stress that they encounter from that isn't, doesn't ruin their whole day. It doesn't send them down that roller coaster of constantly, like my whole day is ruined because of this, because of this one thing, I just can't get past that. We start to ruminate on it sometimes. And that's where neurofeedback has been very powerful. I've seen to help people break up those stuck patterns. They get stuck in that brain, and they can't turn off those fire alarms. Yeah, that makes that a help? lot of sense. So that's one of the benefits of neurofeedback. Can you share some other benefits of neurofeedback? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when we turn that stress response off, a host of things change for us. Probably the very first thing that I can say would be sleep. Um, our sleep patterns start to regulate. We start getting to where we can fall asleep, stay asleep, wake feeling refreshed, not feeling so tired in the middle of the afternoon, not lethargic, feeling like we need to nap. Um, and with that increased ability to sleep and rest, our body is able to recoup and we're not as irritable. We can remember things better. We are more productive. Our performance is naturally going to go up. We're going to feel like, gosh, I'm actually accomplishing things today. I'm not stuck worrying about X, Y, and Z. I'm able to move right past that. Yeah, this happened, but I'm good. I can move on to the next thing. So as they become, as they train, their brain becomes more flexible and resilient. And so when we have flexibility and resilience in the brain, that's where our brain is like the muscle. When we're more flexible physically, we are less likely to have injury. We recover faster. And so, therefore, the brain is the same way. So yeah, really helping to increase that flexibility and resilience. That is so helpful. And it's so helpful because – it's one of the scariest things about having been through sexual betrayal is that women obviously have trouble trusting their partners again, but they really have trouble trusting themselves. And through neurofeedback, I'm hearing you say that it really allows a client to reorganize their brain and start trusting their intuition, their executive functioning, and just their brains in general. They can trust themselves. Absolutely. The brain knows what to do. We just need to give it the information. Okay, now how long does it take to see results? I know that you can't just wave a magic wand, but for most people that have experienced trauma, how long does it take? Oh, wow. 
that is really a loaded question because everybody's brain is different. Um, and everybody's brain is different because it, we have different levels of flexibility in our brain, right? So some are more flexible naturally than others. Some are not. Um, I would say that the average person going that's had some kind of trauma, as such as our listeners, I would, gosh, I would say maybe 50 to 60 sessions is what I would do. So you're looking at, you know, two to three months of consistent training, depending on how often you do it. Um, but I would, I would, yeah, so that the brain can do it consistently on its own um, and then be able to have that last. That would be, and then I want to know, that would be my recommendation. Okay, so on average, 50 to 60 sessions, and then how long does a session take once you get into the groove of neurofeedback? Um, each session is 33 and a half minutes long. I say it's the most relaxing exercise you will ever do with no yoga pants, no sweat, and no gym membership because it is exercising that brain, but it is so relaxing. A lot of people fall asleep doing it. And so I want to ask you, um, does insurance pay for this kind of thing? No, it does not. Not not currently. It's not a medical therapy. It's not medical equipment. So, therefore, there are no billing codes for neurofeedback. And I don't, I don't bill for it. Wow, that understandably, it's a it's a relatively new treatment. I mean, it's been around since the sixties or seventies. Yeah, it's it's actually been around since like the nineteen hundreds, but um, it really started in the fifties, sixties. There were some studies done with cats um, for people who struggled with seizures and epilepsy. And it kind of grew from there. And now the technology is such that we don't need a whole room to be able to provide feedback with a lot of big equipment. Now we put it on a tablet and, you know, you can pack it up and send it home and you can train at home. You don't even have to come to office sessions now. Um, when I first started, we just did sessions in our office for people and they would come two to three times a week um, for several weeks. But now you don't even have to do that. You can if you want to if you don't have to. Now you can um, come in, get trained on how to hook up, how to do the session, and you can take it home. Well, that makes it easy. Um, so what age do you have to be to try this? I mean, you obviously said your son was a candidate for it. How, how young and how old? So the youngest that I've worked with has been about 18 months old. Um, there is no age. You can work with newborns. I've worked with women um, who've just had infants that have had trouble sleeping or they've had some birth trauma. And we've worked with, um, I know other people that have worked with like an infant infant. Um, I've only worked with someone as young as 18 months old. Um, and then my oldest client was 94. So there's really no age. Any brain, your brain has the ability to learn until, until we die. And um, mm. so anybody, no, no age on the training. Right. Okay. And can I ask you, are you on a cell phone right now? I am. Okay. If you could put that down, it's kind of going in and out. So I don't know if you're moving it or what, but I want this to be super clear because I want our listeners to really think about would neurofeedback help them and you know, I agree with you. All muscles require exercise, and this is the easiest type of exercise you can do to have a fit brain. And I was telling everybody before you joined us that you have this website, and it's, tell me if I'm right, it's www.beyourbestbrain.com. Is that correct? That's correct. All right, and so... Obviously, Christy, you're from Indianapolis because we have shared some clients. But if people had questions,
questions for you, um, if they needed referrals to other cities, what would you tell them to do to um, access neurofeedback in their own cities? Yeah, absolutely. You can email me, and I have a list of other providers if you're looking for someone who you want to do in-office sessions with. Um, if you want to do a few in-office sessions before you decided to rent, if you ended up just wanting to rent a system, you can do that as well. But you could just email me. It's K-R-I-S-T-I at BeYourBestBrain.com. And I can help you get connected with someone um, if you wanted to work one-on-one. -on -one. Okay, so you talked a little bit about going into the office and trying it or renting a machine and trying it. Just take us through what it would be like, what's a normal day like for, for your clients who come in for the first, second, and third time. What might they do? Uh, the first time we might come in and just fill out some just very simple paperwork, discuss maybe what some of um, the goals that they would like to see, what are some areas um, where they would like to see some improvement. Uh, we talk about that. We decide if, if neurofeedback is going to be a good fit for them. Um, some people have tried a lot of things and not had success. Some people have tried some things and had some success here and there. And so we really try to get a baseline for where they're coming from. If I think this is something that they're ready for, they're ready to commit to, it, it is not something that you're going to do once or twice and be, oh, my life has changed. Um, and I really want to make sure people understand that it's like a diet. You're not going to eat healthy for two days and all of a sudden your digestive system is repaired um, and you're feeling great again. Probably not going to work that way. And that's exactly how neurofeedback is. So we really want to get a good assessment there um, for where they're coming from and what they're looking for. But we, and sometimes we'll just do it, go ahead and do a session that first time. Um, usually then after like the um, fifth to sixth time of being in a session, we kind of go back and we reassess where we are. You know, where are some changes? What are some things that you've seen? A lot of changes in the beginning are very subtle. Um, and I really try to teach people how to become more self-aware of where there is change occurring in other parts of their life. Sometimes it's not always what they're looking for in the beginning, what they get, um, but ultimately they usually see a lot of changes. So really after about five to ten sessions, we'll, we'll kind of reevaluate and see where they are, um, what they're experiencing, um, and go from there. So, but as far as coming in, you do the same session every single time, and it's just training that brain every single time they come in, and then we just use these progress tracking tools in our office to try to determine um, what you're seeing change and where. Absolutely. And then are there special tests that are involved in assessing, you know, neurofeedback? No, not for the program that I use. Uh, we don't <laughs> do any special mapping or any test or anything like that. You don't have to have a diagnosis. It's going to work with that brain where it is, no matter where it's coming from. And yes, you can be on medications and do neurofeedback. There are no contraindications with medication. Well, I think you did a beautiful job of explaining this process. And it's even exciting because, as I indicated before, it's so scary when the brain goes offline and you've been traumatized. And I would have to say 80% of the partners that I worked with are absolutely traumatized and their brain doesn't feel the same. As a matter of fact, most of their body doesn't. I mean, their digestive system isn't the same. Their parasympathetic system isn't the same. And, and so anytime they can begin to feel normal again, I mean, that is such a gift. And what I heard you saying is that this is good for anybody who's had trauma, but it's good for anybody in general. You don't even have to have a major trauma to really refine your ability to strengthen your brain. Absolutely. And, and that's, what, that's what I love about it. Um, recently in this grad program that I'm doing, we learned about cognitive decline and how we as a society have just accepted that as we age, 
certain things happen to our brain and we are going to, you know, it's just part of getting older that you forget things and you, you know, your brain starts to, um, you don't remember as well, you don't sleep as well, and, and that's just part of it. And what we're learning in this program is that's not part of it. That, that's an indication that we're not taking care of our brain. We're not hydrating. We're not eating a diet that is conducive to supporting our brain health. We're not moving enough. Um, are we in relationships? Have there been old traumas, old things that we haven't processed well? Um, how social are we? You know, are we continuing to learn? Those are all things that impact our brain. And those are all the things that we have to do because we shouldn't be having cognitive decline in our 30s, 40s, 50s. We shouldn't be having that. We should be taking better care of our brain. Well, you're talking to um, an exercise enthusiast. I exercise every single day, and it's exciting to think that there would be a way to take care of one of the most important parts of our body, our brain. So, Christy, I want to thank you so much for your uh, wisdom today. Again, her website is beyourbestbrain.com, and her email is Christy, K-R-I-S-T-I, at beyourbestbrain.com. Thanks again. Thank you. Uh Uh-huh. Have a great week. Bye-bye. All right, you too. Bye-bye. You know, one of the things that I know is that it is important to create intentional self-care if you're a partner. I don't care if you're a partner at the beginning when you've just been through discovery or you're in the midst of grieving and, you know, you're in year one, two, or three. And then the beautiful thing is that when you're into year three, four, or five, you're probably accessing some very strong post-traumatic growth. And that's when, you know, your brain has naturally gone back online. So to hear that there's neurofeedback that can help assist it in getting healthy quicker, boy, So many things feel out of control, and that's um, a technique that can help you feel like you've got some major control. So thanks to Christy today for helping us to understand that we can be our own best brain. Um, And I want to tell you, I'm telling you now, my post-traumatic growth course is almost done. So I'm going to be talking with you uh, between now and the end of the year about post-traumatic growth principles that you can be looking for and seeing if you utilize to know if you're getting closer to post-traumatic growth or if you're in post-traumatic growth. So I'm real excited about that, and I'll let you know when that course uh, opens up. Uh, It'll be an online course that you buy, and then you can have it forever and take the course whenever you need it, whenever you need a little confidence that you are moving in the right direction. And you all know I have Help Her Heal, the empathy workbook to help sex addicts help their partners heal. And I've got an online course there. You can go to sexhelpwithcarolthecoach.com. That's my website. And you can pick up uh, the course. Your husband can see it. He can go through it. Uh, You can go through it so that you know what he's working on. Or you can go through it as a couple. But it's a... It's like 12 modules of information. It actually um, parallels each chapter of the book. And there's PowerPoint information, and there's me talking on every module. It's like you're in the office with me. And I've got a lot of transcripts and articles and uh, YouTube videos that I want you to see. Uh, If you are an addict wanting to help her heal, If you are a partner who wants to direct the addict as to how he can help you heal, or if your coupleship would benefit, it's just an amazing course. All right. 
So enough about me. Thanks for listening to Neurofeedback today. I was super excited to have her on. And as I say at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. And we'll catch you next week for more Betrayal Recovery Radio. For more information, go to APSATS.org, the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists, to find a professional in your area who is trained to help you after sexual betrayal.